Well, it is a wonderful day to be in the house of the Lord together. I'm really excited because we're going to be starting back over in the beginning this morning in Genesis 1. First book in your Bible, first verse in your Bible, and that is where we're going to camp out this morning. There's so much going on just in the first few words of the Bible. Just this first verse contains so much for us to chew on and to to consider. The first question that you may ask and that I honestly asked myself is, why are we studying Genesis? Why should I undertake a serious study of this first book of the Bible? There are three big reasons that we would want to study Genesis. The first is that every major doctrine in the Bible has its roots in the book of Genesis. And I encourage you to try to prove that wrong. You know, every major doctrine in the Bible has its roots in Genesis. I've tried to prove it wrong and I can't yet. So I'm still sticking by it. It's the foundation for the rest of scripture. And the book's foundation is its first verse. Out of that first verse comes everything. Now, there are many things that are talked about later in the Bible that you won't fully understand if you're not familiar with the book of Genesis. The most important example of this is the death of Christ. Why did he have to do that? Why did he have to come to the earth as a man and die on the cross in our place? Well, it's because of this problem of sin that's originally talked about in Genesis 3. And God wanted to get us back to the state of communion with him that we see in Genesis 1 and 2. That's why Jesus had to die on the cross. If there's no sin, there's no need for Christ to die. You see, all of this that transpires, the whole story of redemption starts in the book of Genesis. The second reason we should undertake a serious study of this book, if you truly believe the book of Genesis, and even if you just believe the first verse, then you won't have any trouble believing the rest of the Bible. If you believe that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, nothing else should challenge your belief. Think about it. Oh, Jesus healed a paralytic. Of course he did. He created man. Oh, he rained down fire to judge a city. Of course he did. He made everything. Oh, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Of course he did. And of course, he can do that. That in itself is a good reason to study and become familiar with this book. Now, the last reason I want to mention is that there are really only two worldviews. It's either in the beginning, God, or in the beginning, a cosmic accident happened and everything else kind of fell into place and then here we are. And what you believe about the beginning determines how you live your life. Do you live it with purpose? Is there even a purpose of us being here? According to evolutionary thought, we are the highest order of being. Humans are the ultimate reality. Nothing has evolved more than man. Therefore, we are not accountable for our actions, and there's no such thing as sin, just survival. So the whole motivation for evolutionists is removing the need for a creator to be involved. And this is to escape accountability to him. As Sir Julian Huxley, one of the leading evolutionary biologists of the 20th century, so succinctly put it, I suppose the reason we leaped at the origin of species, which is Darwin's flagship work on evolution, was because the idea of God interfered 
with our sexual mores. He just comes right out and says it, escaping accountability for his sexual desires. When we look at creation versus evolution, what we're seeing is actually a conflict of worldviews. That's what it boils down to. Both sides bring their own presuppositions to the conversation. A Christian brings their belief in God as the creator, and the evolutionist brings their belief that there is no God. It's as simple as pitting God's word against man's word. That's what it boils down to. But unfortunately, there have been and still are Christians who believe it's fair or equitable to approach a non-believer without using the word of God as a foundation for their position. This is dangerous. This doesn't leave us on neutral ground like we may believe it would. When we throw out our foundation, the only one left to stand on is their foundation which is man's word. It's not neutral ground. There is no such thing as neutral ground. Jesus even says that he who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. This mushy kind of gray area, a neutral ground to argue on, does not exist. The intelligent design movement has gained quite a bit of popularity in the recent years, but it's important to understand that ID, intelligent design, is not a Christian movement. Now, there are Christians in the movement, and there are non-Christians in the movement, but they're very careful not to identify the designer. They only suppose that there is a designer, and there is a difference between the two. And don't misunderstand me. I understand why they treat the issue this way. And I do sympathize with them because most of them are involved in academia in some form or fashion. And to voice your religious opinion in that sphere is usually career ending. So they have to tiptoe around the fact that they believe in creation by saying, yes, there is a designer but I'm not going to point you to that designer. Okay, this is the intelligent design position. But understand as a Christian, it is your job to point people to the designer, the God of the Bible. That's, that's what we're doing here, is pointing people to the designer. And we do that by his word. We cannot give up our foundation Romans 10, 17 says, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by what? The word of God. We cannot give up this solid foundation of God's word that we stand on. So if it's so important to maintain this foundation of scripture, surely we have to know what the scripture actually says about the origin of our universe. And first of all, as we approach this record of Genesis, we have to ask this fundamental question, is Genesis history? Because if it's not, then we have some other questions we've got to sort through. Is Genesis history, or is it just a fanciful rendering of old legends compiled in a strictly allegorical literary fashion? In other words, is Genesis history or allegory? That's something we have to tackle. And how we answer this question has far-reaching implications on how we treat the rest of the Bible. If you interpret Genesis to be only allegorical, you've got bigger problems than just this one book. You're questioning the accuracy and truthfulness of Jesus Christ because he regarded Genesis as containing specific historical accounts of real people, real places, and real events. For example, in Matthew 23, 35, Jesus references Abel as a real person whose blood was shed. The New Testament 
is quite dependent on the book of Genesis. There are at least 165 passages from Genesis that are either directly quoted or referenced in the New Testament. 165 different passages from Genesis. And many of those are alluded to more than once, which makes over 200 quotations or references to Genesis in the New Testament. Over half of those references reference the first 11 chapters of Genesis, this period we would call prehistory. And every New Testament writer refers somewhere in their writings to the first 11 chapters of Genesis. The issue of how you interpret Genesis is not confined to the book of Genesis. It determines how you view the rest of the New Testament. Not one of those references of the 200 give the slightest evidence that these inspired men of God considered these events or personages to be merely allegorical. And we won't go through each of those this morning, but they are cataloged in the book, The Genesis Record by Henry Morris. And he does a great, great treatment of the entire book of Genesis in the Genesis record. Those who are willing to reject the historicity and divine authority of Genesis are in no small way undermining the authority of the entire Bible. And no wonder our kids are falling away from the faith at such an alarming rate. We give them no foundation to stand on. Now, please understand that there is a difference between allegorical interpretation and allegorical application, okay? And this is a distinction that really needs to be made. There are allegorical applications to the events recorded in Genesis. And the inspired New Testament writers make these applications in their own writing. They reference allegories from Genesis, Galatians 4, 21 through 31 is heralded by the allegorists as a major proof text for their view. So I want to take a look at it real quick. That's Galatians 4, starting in verse 21. This is Paul writing to the church in Galatia, who was having trouble staying on a course of faith and instead started to veer off into a course of works. Galatians 4.21, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondwoman, the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was according to the flesh, and he of the free woman through promise, which things are symbolic. In Greek, that word symbolic is allegoreo. Allegory, where we get allegory. So that is talking about an allegory in Genesis. He goes on to say, For these are the two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is, and is in bondage with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all, for it is written, Rejoice, O barren. You who do not bear, break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For the desolate has many more children than she who has a husband. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are children of promise. But as he who was born according to the flesh then persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, even so it is now. I want you to pay attention to verse 30 and 31. Nevertheless, what does the scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. So, of course, the allegorists key in on this sentence, which things are symbolic, that starts verse 24. However... Reading through this passage, it's clear that Paul actually regarded Hagar, Ishmael, Sarah, 
and Isaac as literal people. He regarded this as a historical account. His interpretation, in other words, is historical. His application to us is allegorical. And specifically, he points out that Hagar and Sarah represent the two covenants. Hagar represents the old covenant under the law and under the flesh. And Sarah represents the new covenant under Christ and the spirit. He references Genesis in verse 30 saying, Nevertheless, what does the scripture say? Then he quotes Genesis, Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. And so in this allegory, Paul is urging the Galatians to choose Christ over the law. And that's really what it comes down to. He points back to this historical account of Genesis and says, this is how you can apply this. And he applies it in an allegorical fashion, though he still regarded it as history. Now, there are two books that if you're going to undertake this study of Genesis, I would really, really recommend Both are by Henry Morris. I just mentioned the Genesis record. That's one. That's more of a commentary style of writing. And then Biblical Creationism, also by Henry Morris. And in that one, he just goes through and tells you what each book of the Bible says about creation. And it's fascinating. And in almost all of the books, there is some kind of mentioned to the first 11 chapters of Genesis. It's a fascinating study if you want to go down that road. The next question, who wrote Genesis? Okay, you may come across something called the documentary hypothesis. And this is the idea that Genesis, as well as many other books of the the Old Testament, were written by various authors who allowed their work to be attributed to Moses so that it would be invested with the authority of Moses. So they're saying that Moses didn't really write these books, but some other people did and passed it off as his work. Now, I'm here to tell you that the documentary hypothesis is false. Please don't be led astray by this unsupported and contra-biblical, truly, issue. Others will attempt to discredit this book by saying that writing wasn't even around in Moses' day. So he couldn't have possibly written it. And this is altogether ridiculous. God entrusted Adam, the very first man, with the task of naming all his creatures. This very task implies the use of language and also requires advanced mental faculties. Early man was brilliant, directly created by God in his image. And writing was an important part of Moses' society as well, and all of those before him. So I'm going to save you a lot of boring reading here. Jesus refers to the first five books of the Bible, which collectively are the law, as the law of Moses. So we can be confident that Moses is the author of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Luke 24, 44 records Jesus' words to his disciples. These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which are written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. So Jesus does confirm that this law was written by Moses. But how did Moses receive and transmit the content of the book of Genesis? You know, there's obviously content here from before when Moses was alive. He certainly wasn't there for creation, and he wasn't around for much of what is recorded. The text itself seems to support the idea that Moses, rather than actually writing all of the records contained in the book, acted as a sort of compiler and editor of these written records from the past. He assembled these records together 
and provided transitions when necessary, all under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Each section of Genesis concludes with a phrase like, these are the generations of blank. These are the generations of Isaac. These are the generations of Jacob. And the word generations is translated from the Hebrew toledoth, which means origins or records of origins. There are 11 of these sections in the book, and we won't go through each one right now, but we'll see them as they come up. These sections were supposedly recorded and stored away by the men whom they gave an account of. So Moses compiled all of these records into the book that we now have as Genesis. Now, let's begin to look at Genesis from a macro view, way zoomed out. This book can be divided into two major sections. Chapters 1 through 11 deal with what we call prehistory. And this is just the time before the call of Abraham. So from creation to the call of Abraham. This section, prehistory, deals with the whole world, all of the nations. The next section, the last section, chapters 12 through 50, the end of the book, Genesis deals with Israel specifically, the specific nation of Israel. Chapters 12 through 50 take us from the call of Abraham up to the death of Joseph. During the time covered here, the foundation of the nation Israel is recounted. That's another one of those major biblical themes that has its beginning in Genesis. Now, there is that shift from chapters 1 through 11, talking about all the nations, to in chapter 12, it starts dealing with Israel specifically. And this is the foundation for what we know throughout the rest of the Bible as Israel. It's beginning in Genesis. And taking it down even further, we can look at the chapters of Genesis and relate it to certain topics. Chapters 1 and 2 give us the creation account. Chapter 3, the fall of man. Chapter 4, the account of Cain and Abel. Chapter 5 is the genealogy of Noah. Chapters 6 through 9 recounts the flood of Noah. Chapters 10 and 11 recount the Tower of Babel. And all of those are what we call prehistory. Then in chapter 12... Through 20, the call and service of Abraham. Chapters 21 through 26 tell of Isaac, who is Abraham's son. Chapters 27 through 36 tell of Jacob, who was Isaac's son, and tells of the 12 tribes that come from Jacob that we know as Israel. Chapters 37 through 50 tell of Joseph, who was Jacob's son. And the book ends with the death of Joseph in chapter 50. The moment you've all been waiting for. Let's look at verse 1 in Genesis. It says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Verse 1 is probably the most read verse in the Bible. Wouldn't you agree? A lot of people start off reading the Bible. Not as many people keep reading it, but you should press through. It's pretty good. Each one of the words in this first sentence of the Bible deserves some attention because there's so much meaning that's packed into this verse. And this verse has some far-reaching implications for us as humans. We're going to wait to talk about this word beginning but we'll start with God. God is translated from the Hebrew Elohim. And Elohim is actually the plural form of the word El. But it's used here as if it were singular. 
You see, even in English, we have certain rules of grammar that you have to abide by. We have rules for singular nouns and rules for plural nouns. This word Elohim is a plural that's used as if it was singular. That's pretty interesting. Right off the bat, in the first couple words, we have this reference, this hint, if you will, to the uniplurality of God. Now, it doesn't hint at the triunity, the trinity, but it does hint at a uniplurality. There is something else, however, that seems to point us to the direction of a tri-unity, and we'll look at that a little bit later. This word created is a very specific word in the Hebrew, bara. Bara speaks of a creation out of nothing, ex nihilo. This word is distinct from others like asa and yatsar, which mean something more along the lines of fashion, or make, or prepare. Bara speaks of the creation of something which had no existence whatsoever before its creation. In other words, there was nothing, then God spoke the elements into existence. By the way, this word bara is only used of the work of God. It never describes something that man does. Because we can't. No one else has the ability to create something from nothing other than the omnipotent God. Bara, as opposed to Asa, Yatsar, it's like the difference between molding clay and creating the clay. You see, there's a very distinct difference there. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, before the beginning was God. But besides that, nothing. We can't really comprehend nothingness. I want you to just take a second, try to think about nothing. You got it? You're probably picturing empty space you know, either outer space, maybe, or just trying to think of empty space. But even empty space is not nothing. Even if you removed all of the atoms from a particular space, you'd be left with gravitational and electromagnetic fields still in that space. It is not nothing. Nothingness is a foreign concept to us. Now, I will present you with this thought. There is either an eternal, transcendent God or eternal matter. Has to be one or the other. Those are really the only two choices that we have, an eternal God or eternal matter. And science has concluded that matter is not eternal. That leaves us with one option. They're saying that even if everything continues in its present course, the universe will ultimately reach what they termed ultimate heat death. Ultimate heat death is not what we probably think of as everything burning up. It's actually the evening out of heat distribution all throughout the universe. So we know from second law of thermodynamics and other logic that when an energy transfer occurs, there's a small bit of that energy that becomes unusable. It's not perfectly uh, efficient. There's a little bit of loss there. If that happened over who knows how long, like I don't even know what their figure is on the length of time this will take, but I promise it poses no threat to us. It's so far in advance. But they say that if everything runs in its ultimate course, the way it is today, the universe will eventually experience this ultimate heat death where no more work can be done. This tells us that the universe is not infinite. 
because if it were, it would have already reached this point of ultimate heat death. So matter had to have a beginning. Now, of course, we really know what's going to happen before that even gets here. So we just went through Revelation, so we should all be firm in what's really going to happen. Obviously, none of us were there at the beginning to witness this act of creation. The only witness to this event was God himself. And if he was there and we weren't, I think we should listen to what he says about it. I would rather listen to an eyewitness than someone who came along thousands and thousands of years later who's trying to look back at evidence from thousands of years ago and figure out how it happened. Our next word is heavens. And in some translation, it's translated singular as heaven. In my New King James, it's heavens, plural. This doesn't mean the stars of heaven, which weren't made until the fourth day of the creation week. The stars would constitute the hosts of heaven, which are referred to in Genesis 2.1 as distinct from the heavens themselves. It says, thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. So we're not looking at the stars being created here. The essential meaning of this word seems to correspond closely to our meaning of space, such as when we refer to our universe as a universe of space and time. Apparently, there's no other Hebrew word used in that sense in the Bible. But all throughout, the use of heaven is consistent with this concept of space. Therefore, it seems we can understand heavens here to reference the space component of our basic space-mass-time universe. Earth. In a similar manner to the heavens, the earth seems to refer to the component of matter in the universe. Verse 2 tells us that the earth originally had no form to it. It was formless. So the first verse must speak generally to the creation of the basic elements of matter, which would later be organized into the structured earth, and it would also be assembled during the creation days into other material bodies. The Hebrew word translated here as earth is very commonly in the Bible translated as land and ground. Here it can be seen to refer to the earth material in general. Now we'll take a step back to the beginning and look at the word beginning. This first word in the Hebrew text is actually the name of the book, too. It's Barashit, or beginning. In the Septuagint, it's translated as Arche, the Septuagint being the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. They chose to translate beginning as Arche. You know where else that, that word shows up? John 1 1. John says, In the beginning, Arche was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. John is drawing a direct comparison to the account of Genesis. He uses the same words in the beginning. In fact, John says that all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. It's very evident by the context that the word of God he's referring to is Jesus Christ. John points to the pre-existent one of Jesus. He was there with God in the beginning, before anything but God existed. And this term, beginning, refers to that third fundamental aspect of our universe, 
What's the only one that's left? Space, mass, and time. This denotes the beginning of time. Thus, in the first verse of the Bible, we have reference to the fact that the product of God's creative work is a tri-universe composed of space, mass, and time. Now, remember that I said that word Elohim only hinted at uniplurality, not necessarily triunity. But the fact that God's creative work resulted in a tri-universe does seem to strongly suggest this attribute of his. So in the first verse of the Bible, there is this hint at God's divine nature. Romans 1.20 says that since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power, dunamis, and Godhead, Theotis. Godhead, Theotis, is speaking of his divine nature, who he is fundamentally. And that verse says that his divine nature is communicated by the things that are made, creation, the universe that he created. None of these attributes of our universe, either space, mass, or time, could exist without the other two. They're inextricably linked and yet distinct from each other. Each one is necessary to the other two, and you can't get around it. Matter takes up space and is present in time. Time is meaningless without something inside it something happening. And space has no reality if there's not something inside of it that is being bound by time. They're all, they go together. And this is one way that we see God's divine nature communicated through his creation. Now, I do want to point out that that verse, Romans one twenty says that his eternal power and Godhead are clearly evident in creation. It does not reference his love for us. If you look around in the world today, you look at nature, yes, it's beautiful. Yes, it communicates his power. It communicates his Godhead, his nature, but it does not communicate his love. You go over to Africa and you look at the the deserts, that doesn't exactly communicate love. You see the lion running through the desert, chasing a gazelle, you know, tearing into it. That doesn't really communicate love to me. Now, of course, it was different at the onset of creation. But when Paul's writing this, creation does not express God's love. What does God always point to when he wants to communicate his love to us? The cross. That's how we know that God loves us. Not through what he's made, but what he's done. This creation from nothing runs completely against the evolutionary perspective. And to allow for evolution to run its course, scientists have estimated the earth to be about four and a half billion with a B years old. One of the ways they come to this conclusion is by observing the rock layers that they say have been laid down over the course of Earth's history. Well, you ask, how can they tell how old those rock layers are? Well, they look at how evolved the fossils are that are contained in those rock layers. I hope that this example makes it clear that their naturalistic worldview determines how they interpret that evidence. It's like a reflexive definition. You figure out how old the rocks are by how old the fossils are, and you figure out how old the fossils are by how old the rocks are. It's interesting. 
Have you ever wondered how two people can observe the same evidence and draw completely different conclusions from it? When an evolutionist sees fossils and rock layers, they interpret it as proof for long geological ages, as proof for a naturalistic explanation of life. But I can look at those same fossils and those same rock layers, and I see it as a solid proof of a catastrophe. I think, wow, those dinosaurs were buried quickly, and they were covered with sediment, which provided for adequate conditions for their fossilization during the flood of Noah. That's what I see when I look at this evidence. The point being, an individual's worldview determines how they see the evidence. Our worldview acts as a sort of looking glass through which we observe everything around us. I'm very open and honest that I approach evidence with the presupposition that the Bible is the authoritative word of God and that it's completely without error. I'll admit that to you. And anyone that I'm having a conversation with, that's the lens through which I see the world. But unfortunately, many evolutionists will not admit that they're seeing the evidence through their materialistic or naturalistic presuppositions. And that's the heart of the issue. And I suppose this is why we see such fruitless debates between creationists and evolutionists. They're debating a peripheral issue when the real issue is one of worldviews. How do you interpret the evidence? Do you see the world through the lens of God's word or man's word? It's really interesting to me that the first verse of the Bible refutes all of man's false philosophies concerning the origin and meaning of the world. This comes from Henry Morris's Genesis record. One, it refutes atheism because the universe was created by God. Two, it refutes pantheism, for God is transcendent to that which he created. Three, it refutes polytheism, for one God created all things. Four, it refutes materialism, for matter had a beginning. Five, it refutes dualism because God was alone when he created. Six, it refutes humanism because God, not man, is the ultimate reality. And finally, it refutes evolutionism because God created all things. And in a very real sense, all of those philosophies are based upon the same principle. That there is no personal transcendent God and that the ultimate reality can be found within the cosmos themselves. As Christians, we know there's a far greater reality than that which we can see around us. There's something more. We look for this city whose builder and maker is God. Now, to understand what a revolutionary view of origins Moses is perpetuating here, I want you to really understand where Moses was coming from culturally and intellectually. Where did Moses grow up? In Egypt. He grew up under the teaching of the best Egypt had to offer. And Egypt was a very pagan nation with a whole host of pagan gods. They also would have taught Moses about their version of creation. The Egyptian creation myths did vary slightly between the major cities, but they seem to have a few things in common. They all start from either a sea of chaos or what's called a cosmic egg, and neither of which are said to have a beginning. Those two entities either the sea or this cosmic egg, are seen as eternal. From those, the creation springs forth. 
and in many pagan cosmogonies, more than one creator deity will be said to exist from the beginning. So you have these pre-existent ones, plural, but there's more than one, which really gives us a logical and mathematical impossibility. You cannot have two pre-existent eternal beings. The law of cause and effect would seem to say that the second had to have been caused by the first. So if you take it back far enough, there must be only one. Now here is Moses saying that the transcendent personal God created the universe from nothing. That idea was countercultural to the the materialistic and pantheistic society that he grew up in. He's really going against the grain here. Evolution is not a new idea. Everybody thinks that Charles Darwin coined evolutionism. He didn't. Evolution, in its basic form, is pantheism, worshiping the creation over the creator. And it's been around at least since Babel. Paul references this idea of pantheism in Romans 1.18. He says, Professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man the birds, the four-footed animals, and creeping things. Therefore, so in reaction to that, God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. And unfortunately, this is exactly what evolutionists are doing today. They're worshiping creation as the ultimate reality and doing so above God. They're effectively trying to remove God from the picture to escape their accountability to him. Now, if we're going to undertake a serious study of the book of Genesis, we need to understand that this book is foundational to understanding the rest of the Bible. Everything flows from it. We should also understand that how we approach this book will determine how we approach other books. If you take this strictly allegorical approach to Genesis, that it's not actually history, then you're left to question the veracity of the New Testament. Because all of the writers thought that Genesis was historical. But if you approach the events and the people of Genesis as a historical and accurate account, your position is absolutely strengthened by those New Testament writers and their testimony of the book. That's the approach that we'll take moving along, is that this is a historical, accurate account. And true science backs that up. And we'll present many evidences for, one, a young earth, six to 10,000 years old, and for creation itself in the coming weeks. And we'll get into this pretty good. Now, there are these theories, these interpretations of the text that attempt to insert millions and millions of years into the Genesis account of creation. These come in a few different forms. You've got your day-age theory, the gap theory, theistic evolution even. And we're going to look at those briefly coming up, but I want to take a little bit of time here at the close of our study to talk about theistic evolution. This is by far the easiest theory to disprove simply using the text of the Bible. Evolution, its mechanism is natural selection, which requires death. You have to have death to select for the positive traits, right? Theistic evolutionists 
will say that evolution is a tool that God used to bring about creation, to bring about the human race. Now, in order for that to work, humans have to come at the end. We have to be the most evolved. And everything before us had to fall into line. Millions and millions of years before humans came along. That means that before Adam was even created, death, decay, pain, suffering, all of that was in God's perfect creation. That is essentially what's going on there. And I want to make the point very clear that you cannot mix these two worldviews. It's been attempted time and time again, but it just doesn't work. The Bible's account of creation is altogether unique and should be taken as truth. And we'll talk about the day-age theory, which is almost equally as easy to disprove, just using the text of the Bible. And we'll talk about the gap theory, um, which is very interesting and a little bit nuanced. A lot of good Bible teachers throughout the years have held to the gap theory. Also, I know at least a couple of them who, as they've gotten older and they've dug a little bit deeper, they tend to move away from the gap theory and into a literal seven-day creation. Just an observation, but it's interesting. So next week we'll probably take verses one and two, maybe get into three, then we'll start picking up some speed from there. So we won't move through this as slowly as we did Revelation, I promise. 50 chapters would be grueling. Let's wrap up this morning in a word of prayer, and then we'll all get to lunch. 